following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. This arcanum pertains to what people have typically called destiny, fate, fortune. And building off the prior lecture on karma, this arcanum is the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the law of causality. The medieval tradition has symbolized this arcanum as the wheel of fortune. The forces of good and evil, evolution, devolution, of which we're going to elaborate in depth today. In the East, this has been known as the wheel of samsara, which actually is a mistranslation of the word bhava chakra. Bhava means becoming. Chakra means wheel. So the English translation, wheel of samsara, which has been used in certain writings, can refer to bhava chakra. But it's better if we use specific terminology. Because bhava is being. Your psychology. Your ways of thinking. Your ways of feeling. Your ways of acting. What you think is what you become. If your mind is impure, then one experiences the consequences of that impurity. Retribution. If we commit harm, not only towards others, but to ourselves, we receive the consequences of those actions through suffering. However, it's by understanding this law of cause and effect by which acting with pure mind, we produce harmony within our community, within humanity. So this bhava chakra, this wheel of becoming, is precisely determined by who we are in the present moment, psychologically speaking. If our mind is pure and we continue to remove the impurities of the psyche, the conditioning of the ego, we ascend towards a higher level of being, 
and we transcend the mechanical wheel of suffering, the wheel of fortune, the wheel of destiny. So in this arcanum, we're going to look at the battle of antitheses, which is represented in the Greek and Egyptian mythology. The forces of evolution, of progress, of development, is represented by Hermanubis, Hermes Anubis, the science and knowledge of the law. Because Anubis, as we said in Arcanum 5, relates to the law of karma, cause and effect. The forces of devolution, destruction, degeneration relate to Typhon, death, decay. We can say that evolution is a process by which the soul or consciousness develops within different levels of matter, energy, and perception until reaching a humanoid state. And it is at this precise juncture in which we exist here and now, in which we have an opportunity to transcend the mechanical forces of nature. It's easy to understand if we examine our psychological states, how certain egotistical qualities truly embody the forces of devolution, of destruction, of decay. So what we call the wheel of fortune is really inside of us. It is our mind stream. It is the Baba Chakra. Who we are psychologically determines where in existence we go, where we transmigrate, whether it be in a humanoid body, an animal body, a plant body, a mineral body. The forces of evolution and devolution, birth, life, and growth, and then decay, death, and destruction are two axes, are two sides of a mechanical wheel, which constantly circles, repeats, again and again, lifetime to lifetime, existence to existence. And we, as a consciousness, are trapped in that mechanicity. It's easy to see if we look at our psychology. We carry many elements that were from the animal kingdom. But not only that, but from the plant kingdom, the mineral kingdom. And we'll talk about this transmigration of souls through different levels of materiality, energy, perception in this arcanum. But I mentioned in synthesis that this wheel of fortune is precisely an ever-turning cycle of events that repeat. It's easy to look in our own life to see how certain habits, events, people repeat. Fortune, misfortune, good, bad positive, negative, of which, if we're honest, we can see that we typically have no control. We have no command of what happens to us. Unless we, as a consciousness, undergo a tremendous revolution, going inside of our mind and discovering what defects keep us enchained in this wheel of suffering. So that by changing our level of being, our bhava, we can transcend this chakra, this wheel of recurrence. So the wheel of the centuries has also been known by the um, name of the wheel of karma. It is the wheel of reincorporation in which the consciousness transmigrates into different bodies, beginning with the mineral kingdom, 
transcending and elevating to the plant kingdom, followed by the animal kingdom, until finally reaching a humanoid state. That is the force of evolution, in which the soul gains necessary experiences. This wheel of centuries also refers to when we have a humanoid body, which we have 108 existences, as represented by the necklace of Buddha with 180 beads, or the ancient rosaries, which would have 108 beads in the Christian tradition. If we do not use our humanoid existences well, if we engage in mistaken habits and behaviors, we in turn continue to flow along that wheel. And instead of evolving, we begin to devolve. Devolution is a force in nature that returns energy and consciousness back to its original state. So if we began in the mineral kingdom, if we don't transcend that mechanicity willingly in order to remove the impurities of the psyche, then our consciousness will migrate back into inferior states of being from the humanoid to the animal to the plant to the mineral until finally our defects, our egos are disintegrated. That process is known as hell, as the infernal dimensions, as the inferno. We develop ego through the process of evolution until we reach the humanoid state, and we are given a chance. If we want to be free of conditioning, if we want to escape mechanicity, that wheel, if we don't want to be taken by the current of our own ego, we have to work on ourselves consciously to perceive our defects. Because those egos, ourselves, the I, trap consciousness within animalistic qualities, within, you could say, plant-like qualities, within mineral-like qualities. The ego is animalistic. It developed originally from those previous states. And if we don't willingly work on our desires, then the wheel of samsara will take us. Because hell is not just a place of punishment for people who do bad in a moral sense. That's a very subjective way to interpret this type of dynamic. Hell is a recycling plant. It's a level of matter and experience in which people who don't willingly eliminate anger, lust, pride, fear, nature will do it for them. Nature will disintegrate those elements through pressure in which that soul descends into the interior of the earth, retrogressing into those previous psychological states of the animal, of the plant, of the mineral, until finally that ego is disintegrated after a lot of suffering. And then the consciousness that was trapped in those shells can be freed. So this is a very different understanding than what Catholicism or Islam teaches in its public sense, that if, you grow, if you're bad, you go to hell, or you suffer in the inferior worlds forever. It's a mistaken attitude. Eternity is a cycle. It's a circle. It isn't a straight line. There's a beginning and an end to eternity. So until the ego is completely dead, then the soul will have to dwell in those dimensions until being purified. And once that consciousness is purified of its egos, its shells, 
its klipot, to use the Hebrew term. That soul will then initiate a new journey into the mineral kingdom, followed by the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom, until reacquiring a new humanoid body. It's easy from explanation to see that this is a very long process. It takes millions and millions of years, ages. It is rare to get a humanoid body. It is rare to be in this body of flesh and bones and to have the opportunity to change. So this wheel of samsara, this wheel of becoming, is represented in this glyph. As I said to you, on the right we have Hermanubis. Hermes Anubis, who takes those souls from the mineral kingdom and helps to elevate them up towards the apex, or better said, the top of the wheel, in which one acquires a humanoid body. But we also see in this image the forces of devolution at work through Typhon, the devolving serpent, the devolving energies in which the ego, because it wasn't eliminated willingly, willingly, is taken and sent into the infernal planes to be annihilated. Samael and Vior mentions that that process is extremely painful and unnecessary because there is a superior path. There is a way to transcend these mechanical forces, which is represented by the top of this glyph with the mystery of the Sphinx. The Sphinx is an animal composed of the wings of an eagle, the hooves of a bull, the paws of a lion, the face of a man, and the staff representing the ether, the spinal column. We'll talk about the mystery of the Sphinx in detail today. It is the path of initiation the path of spiritual revolution, in which one resolves the riddle of the Sphinx, the riddle that Oedipus, the king, was given in the famous play of the Greeks. But that Sphinx is a mystery. The creation of a true human being is a mystery, a divine being. A divine being is in control of the elements of air, represented by the wings of the Sphinx, is in control of the element earth, the hooves of the ox, is in control of the fire of the emotions, represented by the paws of the lion, is in control of the waters of sex, which is the face of a human being or an angel, and lastly, the staff of power, in which the Akashic fire of Kundalini rises up the spine. It is the power of the ether which is in command it's held within the paws of the lion meaning that the fire is what rises up the spine until illuminating the intellect so the path to transcend mechanicity is in our spine if we want to escape the fate of those beings who enter into klipot we must comprehend our own errors eliminate our errors our mistakes. Otherwise, nature will do it for us. And I don't say this to inspire fear or a dogmatic sense that if one doesn't do this work, one will suffer intensely. There is that reality. But I invite you to really reflect in your own life 
and examine what psychological states make you suffer the most and why. Because by seeing them and truly comprehending how the ego creates problems, so much suffering, so much unnecessary grief, we learn that there is really a better way, a better path. Because by the act of comprehending those errors, those defects, the Divine Mother Kundalini, the serpent of brass, can annihilate them. When we annihilate the ego, we feel tremendous peace because we no longer are influenced by this wheel. Birth, death, good, bad, yes, no, duality. We enter the path of initiation and our spine in order to truly experience the bliss of divinity, the contentment of divinity. One thing I will mention is that this wheel turns 3,000 times. Samael and Vior mentions in his book, Mystery of the Golden Blossom, that the consciousness originally emanated from the absolute, from the divine. That soul emanating from Christ, from the being, enters into a mineral body, a mineral state, and gradually evolves until becoming a plant, then an animal, and then finally a humanoid. If the soul that has acquired a humanoid body does not work on the ego, then that soul or that person enters and reincorporates into inferior bodies and descends into the pot. When the soul is finally disintegrated or the ego is eliminated by the forces of nature, that consciousness will reinitiate a new journey. That constitutes one turn of that wheel of Baba Chakra or wheel of samsara. The soul gains experiences that way, but in a very painful sense and very limited. If the consciousness again reinitiates a new life, graduating through those different kingdoms of nature until becoming a humanoid, and then re-entering back down into Klipoth. If that soul goes through that cycle 3,000 times, eventually that consciousness will return, will be taken, and will be returned back to the Absolute permanently. There's a form of knowledge gained from experiences within the evolving and the devolving kingdoms. And yet... It is limited. It is minor. But there's a better way. Those beings that return to the absolute after having gone through these 3,000 turns of the wheel have a form of knowledge, understanding. After having many bitter experiences within the worlds of materiality of the Kabbalah. However, those beings who learn to transcend this wheel of karma, this wheel of suffering, gain a type of knowledge that is revolutionary, that is tremendous. Because to willingly return to the absolute with knowledge is greater than to return there mechanically, without will, without impulse, without command. Those beings who return to the absolute willingly through the path of revolution are like human beings compared to ants 
because the ant is like a being that, or better said, those, those soul or those, those beings, those monads. A monad is a, is a spirit. Monad means unity. If those beings return to the absolute unwillingly, mechanically, they are like an ant compared to those masters who followed the revolutionary path because they developed their potential completely. They're like a human being. There really is no comparison between the two. So this path of evolution, devolution, birth, death, the cycles of existence is obviously very painful. And if we in our heart feel a sense of remorse and urgency when hearing this topic, it's because we previously have gone through this cycle many times, but unknowingly. We don't remember. People who entered these type of studies in the Gnostic tradition, when they learn about the wheel of samsara, the bhava chakra, and they sense a certain type of urgency that they don't want to enter those realms mechanically. It's because the being within oneself, within ourselves, is pushing us to enter the revolutionary path. Because willingly we have to go against anger, fear, hatred, resentment, pride. The whole conglomeration of egos that we carry within. So that by willingly eliminating them, we acquire genuine knowledge and development in the being. We do so by working with the serpent, the kundalini, which is represented by the serpent on the right. You also have a negative serpent, which is the kunda buffer, the tail of the demons, which is developed through the orgasm, through lust. The Quran speaks about these two serpents in the confrontation of Moses before the magicians of Egypt, the black magicians of that uh, country. I'll read for you an excerpt which explains how the power of the kundalini has the power to end the negative devolving energies which descend from the Cossacks downward towards the Klipot, the hell realms. Pharaoh said, Have you come to us, Moses, to expel us from our land with your magic? Yet we too will bring you a magic like it. So fix a tryst between us and you, and which neither we shall fail nor you at a middle place. Moses said, Your trust shall be the day of adornment, and let the people be assembled in early forenoon. So there's a lot going on in this language, in the Quran. What does it mean that Pharaoh says, You have come to us, Moses, to expel us from your land with magic? Pharaoh is a representation of the ego, the mind, the intellect, which always confronts our will, represented by Moses. Moses, if you take the Hebrew, is Moshe, containing the letters Mem, Shin, and He, which contains the, the three elements, air, fire, and water. Mem is water, Shin is fire, He relates to the breath, or Aleph, the wind. Our willpower must command the waters of sex, the fires of the heart, the airs of the mind. That's Moses. Moses is Tifereth, willpower. Who is really the staff represented between the paws of the Sphinx? 
Because it's through willpower and controlling the energies of our sexuality in which we, treme- we achieve tremendous revolution, tremendous power, which of course frightens and angers Pharaoh. Remember that Moses was trying to free the Israelites from Egypt. People read that story literally, but they don't understand that Egypt is this wheel that constantly turns in which the soul is enslaved. It is enchained by materiality, by the forces of nature. It does not know the power and freedom of the being of God, of the innermost. So Pharaoh, the mind, confronts us when we, with our will, try to transcend this wheel, to go against the flow of nature, and says, Have you come to us, Moses, meaning the egos, the Egyptians, You mean to expel us from your land with magic. What is that land? The land is in Hebrew, Malkut, the earth. Your body is your Malkut. And when we study this doctrine and learn meditation and learn about chastity, we encounter the great problem of the mind which which fights against our will that does not want to conserve the sexual energy, that does not want us to be chaste. And so the mind says, you want to expel us, the egos, from your land, from your body. You want to escape Egypt, this wheel. And then Pharaoh fights and says, yes, truly, we will give you a battle and we will bring you magic to combat you. So fix a moment or a tryst between us so that we can fight or meet at a middle place. And if you look at the Tree of Life, we know that the Middle East and Kabbalah is Tifereth the heart. So if you look at the tree of life, going up vertically towards Tifereth, the heart, we find that Tifereth is governed by the sun, the solar logos. Therefore, the east, the sun rises in the east, rises in the heart. And so we fight the great battle in our heart where the two serpents, Kundalini, Kundabuffer, are in a struggle the forces of the being and the forces of the ego. Then Pharaoh withdrew to consult privately, summoned up his guile, and then arrived at the scene of the contest. Moses said to them, Woe to you! Do not fabricate a lie against God, Allah, Christ, lest he should annihilate you with a punishment. Whosoever fabricates lies certainly fails. And who are those people who fabricate lies against God? All those so-called spiritual people who say that fornication is good and they are merely slaves of nature. They get sucked down into the klipot, worshipping the devolving energies of the kundabuffer in the hell realms. So they disputed their matter among themselves and kept their confidential talks secret. They, the magicians of Egypt, the black magicians, the intellectual Kabbalists, said, These two, Aaron and Moses, are indeed magicians who intend to expel you from your land with their magic and to abolish your excellent tradition. So what else is this tradition that people defend? It's fornication, desire. They fight. And when you teach them about being chaste, obviously they have a repugnance. And as Samael and Vior mentions in the perfect matrimony, the doctrines of the demons is fornication, in which they defend fanatically. 
So this is the battle of Pharaoh against Moses. So summon up your ingenuity, then come in ranks. Today he who has the upper hand will be saved. They said, O Moses, either you will throw down the staff, or we shall be the first to throw. Moses said, Rather you throw down first, talking to the black magicians with their staffs. Behold, their ropes and staffs appeared to him by their magic to wriggle swiftly. Then Moses felt a fear within his heart. This is interesting that the Quran teaches this. That Moses was afraid. Because when you confront your own desire, it is very painful. You see that your own lust is a big monster. And with our willpower, we feel overwhelmed. We see that we have so many egos that are so gigantic that it seems impossible that we can overcome ourselves. However, we, says, or God, the being, says to Moses, do not be afraid. Indeed, you will have the upper hand. Throw down what is in your right hand, and it will swallow what they have conjured. What they have conjured is only a magician's trick, and the magician does not fare well wherever he may show up, meaning the, the false sorcerers, etc. So Moses' serpent, of course, in the myth, devours the others. And people remember, and then in the Quran, these black magicians fall down prostrating. Prostrating. They said, We have believed in the Lord of Aaron and Moses. This is from Surah Taha, or Surah 20, verses 57 through 80. So our Divine Mother has more power than any demon. But we have to have faith in her that she can work with the waters of life. And our willpower is strengthened through many exercises like we did before this lecture, the runes. That is a way to work with Moses, your will. So Moses is precisely the one who wields the staff of the magicians, or better said, the white magicians, in order to combat the negative forces. Samael and Vior also mentions that this wheel of samsara, or this wheel of fortune, contains the tree of knowledge. And the tree of knowledge has its roots within the four rivers of Eden, from which a fountain flows. He also says that a river flows into paradise, while another flows into hell. So the four rivers in the Kabbalah represent the four energies or ethers of the vital body. The luminous ether, the reflective ether, the chemical ether, and the ether of reproduction or life. The luminous and reflective ethers are related to the luminosity of consciousness, the ability to meditate, to perceive, to imagine, to know. The chemical ether relates to your catabolism, your metabolism, your biology. And likewise, the chemical, our better said, the ether of life is the power that can give life to a child physically. When the Bible speaks about dividing the inferior waters from the superior waters through the work of alchemy, what it represents is that you are separating the impurities of your sexual energies through runes, through sacred rites of rejuvenation, through meditation, through pranayama. The chemical ether and the ether of life are the lower waters. 
which relate to the health of our body physically. But when you work with the staff of your spinal column, you're raising the luminous and reflective ethers to Christify, empower the mind. And so that separation of waters from waters is the work with the kundalini and is what helps us transcend mechanicity. Otherwise, if we don't use the creative energies of sex, that energy has to go somewhere. So it obviously in, it fills the mind, pushes our desires to act. So it's important to learn to circulate that energy well, not only through pranayama, mantras, runes, etc., but through many activities that are creative, getting good exercise, doing something creative, channeling your transmuted energy into the arts, into music, especially classical music, especially pure art, art that really inspires us spiritually. These two aspects of the Wheel of Fortune, Hermanubis on the right, Typhon on the left, is also the battle of Eros and Anti-Eros, the power of eroticism and the power of Shaitan, the devil. So as I mentioned to you in our lecture on, I believe it was Arcanum 9, we talked about the Hebrew letter Tet. And with the Hebrew letter Tet, the serpent can either ascend up the spine or descend. When it descends it, through the fire of the orgasm, when the noon, the sperm is ejaculated, that serpent Tet descends so that you have Shin Tet Noon, which is Shatan, Satan the adversary. So this is the battle of light versus darkness. And of course, it's very painful. Arcanum 10 relates to how we have to transcend all of our negativity. Not only that which is considered evil or impure, but even the qualities we consider so good about ourselves, what we think are our virtues. Because if you're meditating and you're observing yourself daily, you begin to see elements that really know how to do good, or better said, try to do good, and yet are harmful in certain circumstances. Samuel and Vera mentions that we can harm people with our virtues, those qualities we, we consider evolutionary or beneficial. But really, if we are meditating and discriminating and dissecting our mind with a terrible scalpel of self-criticism, we find that we have elements that are really just egos, so good egos, bad egos. It's better if we work on the bad egos. Salma Island Vayor mentions in his lectures. And then when you're very pure, work on the good egos. It's better to work on that which is malignant first. Exactly. Because many people, many saints, are attached to virtue or what they think are good qualities, but are really egotistical. And the wheel of... Uh, the Bhava Chakra talks about six classes of beings, which includes demigods and gods. You also have humans, animals, hungry ghosts, and demons. So the demigods and the gods are those beings who have certain, certain qualities they develop through initiation, and yet they still have the ego alive, very fat. Therefore, they are attached to nirvana, to powers, to abilities. And they harm people with their virtues. They think they're doing good, but they're not. So a virtue that's out of its place is harmful. 
But when you know how to act in every moment of life under the intuition of your inner God, then you transcend good and evil. You no longer follow the path of the right or the path of the left. But you walk the middle path, the riddle of the Sphinx. So in the superior part of this plate, we see the Sphinx. As I mentioned to you, the Sphinx is a conglomeration of the four elements. Or better said, the five elements, because the ether along with earth, air, fire, and water is the riddle of the human being. The riddle of the Sphinx is the riddle of initiation. How do we become a true human being? Because a true human being commands all the elements of good and evil. Because he or she is beyond that wheel of good and evil. Beyond Good and Evil is, I believe, a title. It's a title of a book by Nietzsche, which is very interesting. And probably my personal favorite of his writings before he deviated was a book called Thus Spoke Zarathustra. In the very beginning of this book, he talks about Arkadam 10. The riddle of the transcendence of this wheel which I'd like to read for you in, in detail in order to explain some of the concepts we were talking about. Because this text is very deep, Kabbalistic, alchemical. So this is about the fictional, it's a fictional account of Zarathustra, the Iranian prophet, a prophet in the Middle East, who is a master of the fifth initiation of fire, who has reached Tifereth. But in the beginning it says, when Zarathustra was 30 years old, he left his home and the lake of his home and went into the mountains. There he enjoyed his spirit and his solitude and for 10 years did not weary of it. So what does this mean that he was 30 years old when he left his home? And what is our home now? Is this wheel. We're stuck here. We're trapped in Egypt in suffering, mechanicity. He was 30 years old, or better said, 33 years old, meaning he, was, he left his home, he raised the energies of the lake of his home. He, it says that he left his home in the lake of his home. And that lake is the waters of Yasod, which is, for us and most people, is, is dirty, it blackened through lust, through fornication. So Zarathustra leaves his home, his old ways of being, by raising the energies, climbing the mountain of the spinal column, the 33 canyons of the spine, the vertebrae, in order to reach the cave, his head, where he enjoyed his spirit and his solitude for 10 years. Which means that in the work of initiation, he's going through all the sufferings of life, good and bad, positive, negative, and yet he continued to practice. He continued to be disciplined. But at last his heart changed and rising one morning with the rosy dawn, the solar logos, the Christ, he went before the sun and spoke to it thus, You great star, what would your happiness be had you not those for whom you shine? For ten years you have climbed here to my cave. You would have wearied of your light and of the journey had it not been for me and my eagle, and my serpent. But we waited for you every morning, took from you your overflow, and blessed you for it. 
So what is that star? In Kabbalah is Ein Sof, our superatomic star, our being, our genuine home, from which we emanated down the tree of life until reaching Malkut. When the soul migrates for the first time from the absolute down into the physical, until the lower dimensions, until reaching the physical body in its different modalities, we experience what the Bible calls exile. The Israelites were exiled from the, their homeland, a symbol of how we left the absolute. But now, by working with the eagle and the serpent of Kundalini, we return that light up the spine to the cave of our head. And truly, that, that limitless divinity known as Ain Sof is a, tr- a form of happiness that is super divine, in which when we experience that, we realize and have greater fidelity in our practices because we see that we must continue to generate light. So what does Zarathustra mean that he is praising the sun, facing the east? Like we started with our practices of the rune Fa, we are assimilating and praying to Christ. You great star, what would your happiness be had you not those for whom you shine? Or marvelous forces of love, revive my sacred fires so that my consciousness will awaken. So, one must continue to practice alchemy to raise the eagle, the wings of the spirit, to the serpent. And but we waited for you every morning, took from you you your overflow and blessed you for it. Because it's good every morning to do runes. Um, Nietzsche knew this very well. But he didn't give the practices because he wasn't allowed to. So behold, I am weary of my wisdom like the bee that has gathered too much honey. I need hands outstretched to take it. I would rather give away and distribute my wisdom, my knowledge of having obtained initiation personally. Like the bee that has gathered too much honey, I need hands outstretched to take it. I would rather give away and distribute until the wise among men, meaning those intellectuals who think they're so knowledgeable, until the wise among men once more find joy in their folly. When they enter these studies, people who may be very educated, but they realize they don't know how to be chaste, how to be pure, to know Christ. And therefore, and also the poor and their riches. Because when we begin these studies, we see that we are poor. We lack development, but we feel how rich it is to recognize that fact and that we can change. Therefore must I descend into the deep as you do in the evening when you go behind the sea and give light also into the underworld, you exuberant star. Like you, I must go down from Tifereth because when you reach initiation, you transcend this wheel to a certain degree, you must return back to Malkut to teach others, to guide them. Because you've done it yourself, now you must teach others how to do the same. Like you, I have to go down, as men say, to whom I shall descend. Bless me then, you tranquil eye, that can look upon even the greatest happiness without envy. Bless the cup that is about to overflow, that the water of life, of transmutation may flow golden from it and carry everywhere the reflection of your happiness. 
Because if you want happiness, again, chastity is essential because that light will reflect in you and you will sense that peace that you get, such as when you do runes, pranayama, etc. Behold, this cup is again going to empty itself. And Zarathustra is going to be a man again. Thus began Zarathustra's going under. Meaning, when you reach initiation, you have to return back to Malkut in order to teach others, to guide them. And by emptying the cup is by professing this knowledge about how to transcend this wheel of mechanicity. It also refers to the complete death of the ego, to go under, to descend, as we said about Arcanum 1, the magician, in order to reascend as a superman, in the words of Nietzsche. So we talk a little bit about the mystery of the Sphinx. So to become a master of one's destiny, one has to resolve this riddle, the riddle of the elements. In the Gnostic tradition, we talk about the ordeals of the elements, the ordeal of air, the ordeal of fire, the ordeal of water, and the ordeal of earth, as explained in the perfect matrimony. These are experiences that we can have in the internal planes, certain tests to see our level of development, how we react to certain circumstances. With the ordeal of air, one witnesses oneself falling into a precipice, into an abyss, risking death. And if one cries out of fear, one loses the experience, one fails the ordeal. Because in life, we have to be caught up in the air of circumstances, but not be afraid. No matter what happens, if our financial situation is, is like a chasm, and we feel that we're going to fall into a pit of despair, we have to be serene no matter what. That's how we conquer the air, the nervousness of the mind that feels agitated and wants security all the time. But in truth, really, there's no security except in the being. Therefore, we have to remember ourselves when certain circumstances of life go against us. That's part of solving the riddle of the air. It's part of the riddle of the Sphinx. Likewise, you have the riddle of the earth, the ordeal of earth, in which it feels like there are walls closing in on you. In the internal planes, you may have the experience of the earth like two mountains collapsing on yourself. And if you cry out of despair or panic, you fail the ordeal. But if you're serene, the walls stop. And then you are invited into the children's chamber of the masters where those cherubim or angels, those perfected luminous beings, greet you in their banquets in order to feast among the gods. So personally, I've had this experience where I overcame certain ordeals relating to the elements and was given their blessing at my level to continue forward. So in relation to the riddles of, or the ordeals of the water and the fire, I had this experience where I found myself lying on a, ground, on a floor in a, some kind of room. I saw darkness. And I heard people laughing at me, trying to provoke my ego. I also got slapped in the face a few times by someone. I couldn't see who. I was being criticized, mocked, laughed at, ridiculed. To be ridiculed or criticized is the ordeal of fire, where you feel the heat of anger arising. 
And the ordeal of water also relates to learning to swim against the current of life, to not get swallowed by life, but to continue with our daily spiritual discipline. So in the experience, I kept getting mocked and slapped. I saw my ego acting up, wanting to react and retaliate, but I intuitively knew that I was being tested by these, um, these cherubim. So I remained peaceful, and I irradiated love towards my aggressors. And then suddenly the, li- the light of the room went on, and I found myself with a group of cherubim. And looking at them, at their eyes, you could see a type of innocence and radiance that is not from this world. And something I can't forget, because they truly were immaculate, no ego, radiating light. And they welcome you in their chambers and give you help and strength. And they test you many times because they want to see that you're able to become like one of them. Control the elements. Overcome the ordeals. Air relating to mind. Fire relating to heart. Water relating to sex. Earth relating to the body. So we are tested many times with the four elements. Not only in the internal planes, but in our physical circumstances. Because initiation is your own life lived intensely with rectitude, moral purity, and love. And so the riddle of the Sphinx embodies this. And if you're familiar with the story of Oedipus Rex, he was uh, the one who resolved the riddle of the Sphinx in that Greek play. So the Sphinx was sent by the goddess Hera to punish the city of Thebes because they failed to punish their king, Laius, who had raped uh, Chrysippus, son of Pelops. So as a result of his homosexuality and desire, he was punished by Apollo, the sun god, or the solar logos, the Christ, who said to him, if you give birth to a son, he will kill you and marry your wife or marry his mother. And of course, this is symbolic. And it represents that if we continue to engage with lustful behaviors following the path of Lilith and Nahima, that means that we will uh, fail the riddle of the Sphinx. We will suffer the punishment of the infernal worlds, the suffering of those realms. And so what happened is that the Sphinx in the myth would devour any Theban who failed to answer the riddle, would kill them. So this is the great ordeal one faces. When you enter into initiation, there's no promises. But they tell you, if you are faithful, you will succeed. If you continue to practice, you will succeed. But if you are failing to work on the ego, and of course the sphinx, meaning the five elements, become inverted. It's easy to see that if we look at our mind, we can see that our air is polluted in the mind the intellect, with negative thoughts. Our emotions are polluted with fires of hate. Our lustful desires have poisoned the energies of our body, our sexuality. In the earth, we tend to get sick with a decrepit body, which becomes unhealthy, unable to work and obey us in this path. But in the myth, Oedipus kills, or better said, Oedipus answers the riddle of the Sphinx. And the Sphinx 
falls to its death. It's a symbol. How when you enter initiation, you are tested many times. If you overcome the riddle of the Sphinx, meaning you command the four elements in you, then you enter into initiation. It's, it's interesting that the word Oedipus means swollen foot, from idan to swell, and pus meaning foot, which is to get the word or pedestal or pedestrian, the feet. So Oedipus was a was a, a king, or he became king of Thebes, and he's represented as having a limp in his foot. It's a symbol, reminding us of Achilles, the Achilles tendon, the Achilles heel. Eid is old. We talked about Od and Ovd, the two serpents of energy, solar, lunar. The lunar serpent is Ida. And the solar serpent is Pingala. Od is the solar serpent, meaning by working with that solar energy within our sexual glands, we can regenerate ourselves. But we are all lame-footed. Even if we become kings of initiation, if we have ego, we're, we're lame in the foot because our weakness is in sex. Achilles was uh, a great warrior who, when he was born, his mother dipped him in uh, immortal waters, except for his heel. So every part of his body was immortal, was impenetrable, and yet he was weak in the foot. And we talked previously how in the Kabbalah, the feet represent Malkut, how you walk in this life. And the sandals in the Kabbalah represent Yasod. So if you want to be strong spiritually, you need sexual energy. But if you... Uh, or, you know, identify with lust, then you're weak in the foot. Because that's how Achilles gets killed. Paris shoots him with an arrow in the, in the heel, and he dies. It means that through fornication, by misusing the sandals, by not walking the path, we, uh, or not following the path of chastity, we get wounded. We suffer affliction. So Oedipus made that mistake. He, he was a fornicator. But if you work with the energies of old, you uh, can transcend this dynamic. One thing I'll also mention relating to the 10th Arcanum, the number 10, is that in the words of Samael and Vior, grants one the ability to see the return, flux, and reflux of all things. So again, Arcanum 10 is movement. Cyclical existence, progression, regression. Nothing is static in nature. Everything is moving, including the mind. So if you learn to transcend the mind, you learn to see all of your psychological states as impermanent. You don't identify with egotistical qualities, the ego, hate, pride, lust, etc. You learn to see how everything is changing constantly and that you don't get carried away by those elements. The principles of Arcanum 10 also teach, as Salvayel and Vera wrote, about creation, conservation, and renovation. Creation is when the soul is born, when the being is born, from emanating from the absolute. When the being descends on the tree of life, as we see in the next graphic, The soul is created. And conservation has to do with how the soul preserves its identity no matter what state of material, materiality it enters. 
So we look in the tree of life, our consciousness emanated from the Ain Sof, our superatomic star, the Absolute. When light emanated from the Absolute, it became the Ain Sof Or, the limitless light. That light descends down the tree of life progressively until reaching Malkut, the physical body. So we talked in our previous lectures about this gradation of energies and modalities of forces. The spirit, chesed, is our monad, our being, atman, the innermost, who unfolds his consciousness, giburah. Likewise, tiferet, our willpower, which has to control the lower elements, the air of netzach, the mind, the fires of the heart, emotion, the waters of sex, yesod, and the earth, our physicality. Our consciousness evolves and devolves within Malkut and on the infernal worlds. So the wheel of samsara is represented here by this physical body and the infernal dimensions wherein the ego exists. So even if our consciousness enters into hell, the consciousness is eternal, is immortal. It belongs to the absolute. Energy never dies. It just changes form. It gains experience. It gains knowledge. But of course, when it's trapped in these lower levels of energy and matter, obviously that understanding is going to be very inferior, limited, because the inferior dimensions, the klipot, the hell realms, are very conditioned. There's more laws there. Everything is condensed, more material, more slow. Temporally, time in the infernal dimensions is, is prolonged. That's why the religions called it eternity. Because it lasts for ages. But this doesn't mean that it's linear, meaning there's no end to it. Because samsara is a, is a cycle, a circle. Likewise, eternity is a circle. And so if your soul never transcends this wheel, constantly evolving, devolving, evolving, devolving, there comes a point where after this 3,000 turns of this cycle, after being disintegrated for the last time in the infernal worlds, that soul returns back to the Ain Sof. But of course, only with limited knowledge, as I said, of the inferior worlds. But of course, that consciousness, that spirit, that monad to which that soul belongs, gains a certain level of peace because certain experiences were acquired and uh, that soul or that being also deserves rest. And so there are many beings like that, many souls that do not feel the urgency to change, to transcend that wheel. But anyone who enters the Gnostic tradition, the Gnostic studies, obviously feels discomfort with this process and wants to ascend the tree of life with, will, with willpower and knowledge. And so, as I was stating, the soul remains eternal, is immortal. That's why Plato said that the soul is immortal in his doctrine. It's always conserved. So as I mentioned to you, those three principles, creation, conservation, renovation. The soul is created from the absolute. It's conserved throughout its process and journeys, its transmigration through different levels of matter, energy, and perception. And then when it returns back to the absolute, it is renovated. It has gained knowledge. But of course, there's different ways to return back to the absolute. Either victoriously or as a failure is another thing. So as I said to you, samsara is a circle 
a circle with a point represents this three circles above, the absolute. Because the circle is feminine. The divine abstract absolute space. The absolute is space. It is cosmic movement, freedom, limitless joy, uncreated light, created neither by any god, any angel, but is the one being of all beings. An ocean of complete contentment. The point is, of course, phallic, as we stated in relation to the Hebrew letter Yod, of which we're going to talk about. And so the circle is receptive, but the point is projective, which is a symbol of the lingam yoni, a sexual symbol of Hinduism. Because it's through the lingam yoni is how we return as husband and wife back to the abstract absolute space. So arcanum 10 is precisely number one and zero. The phallus and the uterus. So to transcend that wheel, we work with the power of Eo. And the mantra of the Divine Mother is Ram Eo. Spelled that backward is Mary, the Virgin. And so, uh, one thing we'll talk about in relation to this tree of life is that Malkut this physical body is a filter. Every soul in the universe must enter Malkut, acquire physicality. And yet this physical body in this physical world is a testing ground, a churning or a grinding wheel in order to remove the impurities and also to extract that which is pure from the grain. So the wheel of destiny is often depicted as a great grinding stone that destroys the impure and liberates the pure. So the good escape, but the, the sinners descend. And the scripture known as the voice of the silence, transcribed by Bobotsky, of which we're going to be giving a course in the future, teaches this. The wheel of the good law moves swiftly on. It grinds by night and day. The worthless husks it drives out from the golden grain, the refuse from the flower. The hand of karma guides the wheel. The revolutions mark the beatings of the karmic heart. So why the grain? Because from the seed, the sexual seed, the tree of life is born. The Kabbalists refer to the tenth sephiroth of the tree of life as Adam Kadmon, the Christic man, the Superman. If we want to develop this tree of life in us, we must work with the sexual seed. Because from Yasod, our foundation, is how we control emotion, how we control mind through our willpower. So that our consciousness is strengthened and our spiritual development is manifested, especially by working with the science of Da'at, a marriage, alchemy. So that is to ascend towards the height of the Superman, which is the Trinity. Keter, Chukmah, Minah. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So I remember I mentioned to you that Oedipus Rex was swollen-footed, lame-footed. Achilles was wounded in the heel. And Yasod is our foundation. The symbol of Yasod is a sandals, as I said to you. 
So if we don't work with the power of Yasod, we are wounded in the foot and the whole tree of life falls. But from Yasod is how we are founded and grounded in order to ascend. And if you look at Yasod in Hebrew, it's an acrostic coming from the Hebrew word Sodi, which means secret, the great arcanum. Malkut is also a receptacle of all the forces of nature which descend from the tree of life. It's a common misconception amongst esoteric students that these different sephiroth are not integrated. They're not related. As if your physical body is something separate from your vital body or your emotions from your vital body or your mind from your emotional body. All this is integrated here and now, moment by moment. In a moment of your interactions of life, you're using your physical body. But in certain times of the day, you may sense more or less energy, yasod, vitality. Likewise, an emotional state may emerge accompanied by a thought with a certain will to act. So you see these lower five sephiroth manifested here and now. All of this is occurring in Malkut. Because Malkut means kingdom in Hebrew. This is the kingdom of all the forces of nature. And this is why this great ordeal or experiment of the Sphinx is here. Because in your physical body is how you determine, how you use all the forces of nature in the tree of life in you. Whether to return to the source or to descend into the infernal dimensions. I also had an experience many years ago where I was talking to my innermost in the astral plane relating to chesed, the spirit, my being. And I was asking him about my tree of life. And he told me that all the sephiroth, I am with you in all the sephiroth here and now. Nothing is separate. Nothing is divorced from one another. So we talked a lot about transmigration. We already discussed the mineral, plant, animal, and humanoid kingdoms. How through evolution, the soul develops through many aeons, millions of years, in different metals, minerals, earth compounds. The soul gains experiences working as a pure soul within nature, within the mineral kingdom. This is, of course, the most simplest kingdom, but an essential one for the vitality and health of our earth. Because without the gnomes and pygmies of the earth, the elementals of that realm, all the electricity of nature biomagnetism, forces of the tides, or better said, all the energies and forces within the elements that fluctuate and transmit through the earth, through the metals, life would be impossible. So in the mineral kingdom is like the nervous system of the planet. All the forces and electricity of all the parts of the earth flow and fluctuate because of the minerals. So their job is to transmit the forces of divinity manifested in the the different elements, into the earth and through the earth. This is why in the Gnostic tradition we like to form uh, pentagrams, of which you both have, made of the seven metals. So with the seven metals, uh, silver, mercury, copper, gold, iron, tin, and lead, you're Trannelling and keeping with you the forces of the seven main archangels. So the seven archangels work 
to the seven planetary metals, which is the job of the mineral kingdom, to transmit those forces so that life can exist. After the soul gains many millions of years of experience within the mineral kingdom, and they've proven their development, they are then graduated into the plant kingdom, which is still a kingdom of great innocence, of great purity, because those souls have more power, but also they haven't left Eden yet. Plants don't own the orgasm. Plants only know how to pollinate and to germinate with chastity. That's why when you look at a flower, you see its beauty, its purity, its simplicity, its chastity. Because it's transmuting the energies of nature from the mineral kingdom, contributing and flowing those forces through its petals, through its fruits, which are so essential for our health and our life in this physical plane. And in the plant kingdom, you have many elementals that are very powerful, which is why Samael and Vior dedicated a whole book to plant magic called Igneous Rose, but also his book, Esoteric Medicine and Practical Magic, which is an essential reads for learning how to work with the angels of the plant kingdom. Samael and Vior calls them little angels because they haven't left Eden yet. They're in paradise. Those souls of the plant kingdom go to the temples of divinity. They receive help from the angels who instruct them how to channel the forces of nature. But of course the plant kingdom is not the maximum development of any being because those souls that learn to control the forces of nature and obey the divine beings, the Elohim, the gods, prove their development after many aeons. They enter the animal kingdom, which is where they begin to procreate through orgasm. They also learn to have collective mind. But likewise, the mineral and plant kingdoms as well, as a type of collective consciousness. But the animal kingdom, those type of beings are learning to develop individuality, starting to think or try to think more for themselves or to exist more for their own being. Like certain high-flying birds, like the eagle, animals like the lion, which are very dominant, independent, the bear. Those are very well-developed animals in that kingdom who are preparing to enter a humanoid state. But those are animal souls. The word anima means to animate, life, to exist. So those animals are given the, are given the instruction at that level and they're driven by the forces of nature, by instinct, to have sex with orgasm as a means of procreation. But of course these animals are innocent. They don't have the intellect to know of a superior way. They're just obeying the forces of nature that flow through them. So this is where our ego really is born in the animal kingdom because desire is formed in that level. However, the animals, after developing for many aeons or after we have developed in many different animal bodies, likewise after many plant bodies, Likewise, many different mineral compounds. We graduate from the mineral, plant, animal to the humanoid kingdom. The intellectual animal. And by this, we say humanoid because a human being is a master who has conquered the four elements in him or herself. Whereas a humanoid is any one of us. An animal with intellect. Because sadly, in the intellectual kingdom of the, uh, the intellectual animal kingdom, we have a 
capacity for reason that can justify, or better said, understand the doctrines of a, the superior path. So when we reach the humanoid kingdom, the angels gave into our ancient humanity, represented in the Bible as Adam and Eve, the content of Lemuria. The commandment, thou shalt not fornicate. So the animals, they're fornicating because that's all they know. They don't have the reason to justify or understand why fornication is is an element of the animals. They don't know any better. But when we reach a humanoid state, we're given the intellect and the commandment. Before you copulate it as an animal, as a degenerate being, or better said, as a, as a simple elemental of nature, you have ego, animal desire. But now, if you want to enter a higher way of being, you must learn to control the sexual energy. So this is where the commandment, thou shalt not fornicate, comes from. Because to enter the higher dimensions the conscious evolution of the higher kingdoms, one needs a humanoid body and the intellect and to learn to overcome all the elements of the previous kingdoms so as to transcend this whole wheel. We are given 108 humanoid bodies, as I said, but if we fail to use our opportunities, nature will uh, take us to retrogress in animal bodies, plant bodies, and mineral bodies until finally disintegrating within Klikpot. Jalaluddin Muhammad Rumi, the great uh, Sufi poet, explains this process in one of his poems, which we've quoted at length here. He talks about transmigration, how one needs to die in one level to ascend to a higher level. Good question. It's because there, there's, always, there's always mercy with, um, with the law. They don't, the law of divinity, obviously for most of us, we tend to be in our last few existences, if not our last. Personally, I've had the experience where they've warned me, if you don't take advantage of your humanoid body, you're going to devolve very soon. Because personally, I've made too many mistakes, which is why after receiving that commandment and that knowledge and having certain experiences, I've been able to work further because they've sh- the law has shown mercy. The law is mercy and justice. When justice overweighs mercy, we have tyranny. If there's too much mercy but no law, it's complacency with crime. But divinity is beyond that, good and evil, the balance of mercy and justice. And if you're on your last few lives, which is most cases for most of us, doesn't mean that they're going to cut the cord, so to speak. But you can talk to them and show them by your practices and your work that you want to change. And therefore, they show mercy. Personally, I, I, looking at my own mind, I don't see any reason for mercy there. But the, the being is forgiving. The Quran teaches al-Rahman, al-Rahim. In the name of Allah, the compassionate, the merciful. Bismillah, ar-Rahman, ar-Rahim. So God forgives. God is not a tyrant, but can help us to transcend this wheel as Jalalun and Muhammad Rumi teaches. I died as a mineral and became a plant. I died as a plant and rose to animal. I died as animal and I was man. Why should I fear? When was I less by dying? Yet once more I shall die as man, to soar with angels blessed. But even from angelhood I must pass on. All except God doth perish. 
So this is talking about levels and levels of being, which are very high. So why be afraid of the death of the ego? Is what Rumi teaches very beautifully in his doctrine, his poems. Because we were once minerals. We died to that level of being. We entered a higher way of being. We died as plants, become animals, and likewise to a humanoid state. Likewise, why should we fear the death of the ego within this humanoid body? Because there are higher ways of being, more blissful. And even the angels, they die further and further because they reject or renounce lower ways of being for higher. And they continue to ascend up the, the tree of life, but also to the absolute, which is represented in uh, certain images like the Divine Comedy. If you're familiar with the Empyrean of Dante, where he saw the angels ascending and circling around the light. Yes? It's because older people have, in their youth, have typically squandered the energy. And they feel less desire as a result, or less impulse, because the libido is not there. But even older people who've learned to transmute for years, women don't go into menopause, and the men remain virile and healthy without, um, without any uh, impotence. Rumi teaches, when I have sacrificed my angel's soul, I shall become what no mind ever conceived. Oh, let me not exist, for non-existence proclaims in organ tones, to him we shall return. So, let me not be myself, my individuality, let me be the being, the Lord, the Christ, which is one light, it is the cosmic space, which is universal, whose center is everywhere and whose periphery is nowhere. So let me die to myself, meaning let me not exist, but let my soul be one with that light, that great march and symphony of Beethoven, of uh, the Ode to Joy. Freude schöner Gatterfangen, Pachteros Elysium. Joy, beautiful spark of the gods, daughter of Elysium. Wir betreten Feiertrunken, himmlische dein Heiligtum. We enter brought by fire, heavenly thy sanctuary. All men shall become brothers under your gentle wing. This is the famous chorus. Freude schöner Gatterfangen, Tochter aus Elysium. Wir betreten fire trunken, himmlische dein Heiligtum. Because that soul has returned to that joy of the light. It's not him or himself, but it's only the being the absolute. So even the angels die in joy. They ascend further and further in the light. This is the doctrine of transmigration. So, in order to escape the wheel of samsara, we have to overcome our lunar mind and develop a solar mind. So, in order to liberate ourselves from the wheel of mechanicity, the ego must die. So this is known as the path of Isis, the serpent power, who eliminates the ego to return us to Osiris Christ, the solar logos, the absolute. So the lunar mind is represented in the Bible as Cain, and the solar mind as Abel. And most people, our intellect our Cain has killed our conscience. Habel or Abel was the purity of the soul that only worshipped divinity. 
And God rewarded Abel, but not Cain. Cain was a tiller of the earth. He was materialistic, identified with his job and his money and his bank account. Solely, exclusively, without any sentiment or longing for something higher. But Abel is different. Abel is a keeper of sheep, meaning he's an initiate. Because the work with the sheep is the work with people who know how to transmute sexual energy. To be a shepherd is a symbol of Christ. A shepherd is one who has the staff of power, who is an initiate, a master. So Abel was killed by Cain. And that's precisely the act of fornication, the residue or remnants of the original sin. Thou shalt not fornicate. So Cain, our intellect, has gotten very fat and has squandered the energies of God and has become very materialistic in this day and age to the point that our conscience, our Abel, has died. However, Adam and Eve give birth to another son, which is Seth, I believe, in the Old Testament. And the story goes on as a process of explaining how one develops solar conscience. So lunar conscience is ego, relating to the sleep of the consciousness. It has to do with all the mechanicity that we are typically um, associated with. Many people are identified with a type of lunar thinking. Their race, their inheritance, their culture, their religion, their belief systems, their politics, their family, certain desires, prejudices, fears, which are ancestral. We know the saying that the sins of the son live on in the, the sins of the father live on in the son, and likewise, is because people, through the process of transmigration, recurrence, or better said, return, tend to be born in the very same families they've known for many centuries, but in different existences. So we tend to exist and return to new bodies within our own children, through our own families. Because the karma is so dense, we tend to get attracted back to where we have most familiarity. So that's a type of lunar thinking when we identify with all that prejudices and beliefs of people in our families, certain superstitions, etc., certain appetites. And Samael and Vior mentions that this quality is known as the lunar Adam, the lunar man, who gets carried away by the flow of life, mechanicity, and only returns to new existences in order to gain more knowledge and experiences of an intellectual type. But we tend to get so complicated that we lose simplicity, purity, innocence. And he also mentions that the ego can never gain perfection because the ego is the result of imperfection. So people who want to continue to develop their intellect at the exclusion of their soul is the path of lunar conscience. It's also the path of the the moon. Evolution, devolution. Waxing moon, waning moon. Cycles represented by the moon, by mechanicity, of which we're going to listen to uh, excerpts from Carmina Burana, O Fortuna, the moon, which talks about these concepts in synthesis. But to escape that lunar mechanicity, because we know that the moon relates to many laws of nature, like the flux and reflux of tides, menstruation in women, 
the flow of sap and trees during the full moon and waxing moon or waning moon. Likewise, we see that the moon uh, can be transcended and that this moon is a representation of the mechanical forces of nature, of evolution and devolution. Solar conscience is a little different, actually very different. Solar conscience or consciousness or conscience is that insight you get when you're channeling the energies of Christ in you and what you see without ego and can see the mind for what it is. So anytime you recharge your battery through runes, through mantras, you are awakening consciousness and learning to perceive with serene mind. Because when you work with the, the runes, you're liberating the solar energy in your body, in your semen, so that those energies circulate through you and make you one with Christ in nature. When you have solar energy, you can awaken consciousness and you can learn to judge your own defects, the moon, the ego. So the religious cosmogenies teach that the sun relates to Christ, the consciousness, Abel. The moon represents the mind, the I, the ego, suffering. Having experiences in the internal planes of seeing the moon means that you're, one's going to suffer. But if you see the sun, it means that something is being born. I also gave an experience I had in Arcanum 9 in which I saw the sun and the moon. Personally, I've seen this many times, but uh, those are symbols of how one is changing one's level of being or one is failing in one's level of being. Because you see the moon, it means you're suffering and that you're going to descend into pain. But as to see the sun is something different. Solar consciousness, the path of the sun, the path of the revolution of the spirit is what guides one above to transcend the wheel of the centuries. Because the sun relates to the Ain Sof and also the son of God, the son of man, Christ. Because the Christ, the Christic light, emanates from Ain Sof down the tree of life, reaching Malkut. And by working with our practices, we send that light back up our spine to our mind and then beyond. Which is why Nietzsche said, you great star, what would your happiness be without those for whom you shine? Because that light cannot fully develop its potential unless we cooperate. This is why Samael Vayar calls this the solar experiment. Because the creation of the human being is a laboratory in nature, as it created within the laboratory of nature in which a superman can be gestated, a Christ man, a solar man, a being who is not influenced by prejudice, by intellect, by defect, but fully manifest the light of divinity. The Wheel of the Centuries also relates to the planet Uranus or Uranus and the sexual cycles. It's interesting to study planetary influences in relation to this arcanum because Uranus is a planet which charges and channels many forces in nature that affect the sexuality of human beings on this planet. So Uranus is governed by two poles one that faces direct, um, the two poles basically they fa directly face the sun. So there's always one or the other type of magnetic uh, influence that is reaching the planet Earth at certain periods of time. 
There are 42 years for each cycle, which relate to the influence of masculine and feminine influences in our politics, our religion, our, uh, our communities. Because when the masculine pole faces the earth or reaches the earth within a cycle of 42 years, then men tend to take dominance within certain uh, social influences. Whereas another 42 years is related to men. Which creates a, what we call a, a biorhythm in nature of 84 years. Which tends to be the lifespan of a typical human being. Is 84. The average length of human life. So we should learn about this influence of Uranus within our sexual glands. Because Uranus is a powerful planet that relates to the influence of our sexual energy. And can explain many influences within, um, within our countries when men dominate or women dominate. But also one thing that some island VR mentions is that um, one should take advantage of the, the age of 40 in their life because at that point in time one has experienced both polarities of the sexual cycle of Uranus, both masculine and feminine. And one reaches sexual maturity as a result of this influence on the planet around the age of 40, which is why at the age of 40 is, is the best age to begin sexual alchemy, according to Samayan Vior, because one's emotional sentiment is more mature. Whereas when people are younger, they tend to be influenced too much by passion, which is uh, not conducive for uh, sexual chaste marriage, typically in most couples. We also talk about the Hebrew alphabet at the end of these lectures. We have Psalm 119. And uh, we see here the Hebrew letter Yod beginning each of the verses of Psalm 119, uh, verses 73 to 80. And so these principles sum up what we were discussing in uh, the previous, course, uh, previous lectures of this course, but also this lecture. Or read in synthesis. Your hands made me and fixed me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commands. Those who are in awe of you will see me and rejoice, for I have hoped in your word. I know, O Yot Chava, that your judgments are righteous, and in fidelity you afflicted me. So, relating to the teachings of Nietzsche, one um, enters into solitude and meditation and is tested many times by the Christ in order to see whether one will be purified. Let your mercy, I beg you, be for my comfort, according to your word and your servant. Let your mercies come to me that I might live spiritually, for your law, Ein Sof, is my delight. Let the proud be ashamed, the ego, the mind, my lunar mechanicity, for with lies they perverted me, I will meditate on your precepts, let those who are in awe of you and knowers of your testimonies turn to me. Let my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be ashamed. So we see the image of Joseph in relation to the mysteries of Yod or Yosef or Yosef. So Yod 
symbolizes a point or the lingam, the phallus. He is the uterus. Yod He Vau He, Jehovah. The Hebrew letter Yod is a representation of the semen, the sperm, or the ovum, because it's simply a point, a dot, representing Keter, the tenth sufferer on the top of the tree of life, the primordial point of light that emanates from the absolute, which manifests within the universe for the first time as a point of light, as a Yod, which is why Yod is the first letter in the sacred name of God, Jehovah, Yahavah. The Zohar talks a lot about the Hebrew letter Yod. And in relation to the Tree of Life, we'll talk about an excerpt from the Zohar. The Hebrew letters were used to create, or the Hebrew letters themselves in the mystical commentary of the Zohar came to Jehovah and asked for permission to create the universe. So each letter is again a representation of archetypes, principles of nature, of divinity, blueprints for the creation of the soul. Each card of the Torah is a principle associated with the Hebrew letter. So Yod relates to retribution, this card. Because Yod, the power of the sperm or ovum, when it's liberated of its energy, grants us the capacity to escape the wheel of suffering. So in the Zohar, the letter Yod entered at the beginning of the universe's creation. She asked him, or said to him, the Lord, Master of the world, may it please you to create the world by me, for I am the beginning of the holy name. It is fitting for you to create the world by me. He replied, it is enough for you to be engraved in me, to be inscribed in me, my name. My desire culminates in you. You should not be uprooted from my name. So what does it mean that my desire culminates in you? So we know the tree of life, Yod is at the top, Keter, the tenth sephirah. But when that energy descends down the tree of life and manifests in Yesod, it becomes the foundational stone of the temple of mysteries. Yesod is the energies of, of alchemy, of sexuality, which is composed of the following Hebrew letters. Yod, Samech, Vav, Dalet. Yod is the power of Keter, the Logos, the Christ. Samech is the circle, the serpent, or the Ouroboros that we mentioned in our previous lectures. The serpent that swallows its own tail, a symbol of eternity. Vav is the spinal column in which that serpent, Samech, rises. And Dalit relates to the mysteries of Da'at, alchemy, the alchemical teachings. So, why is it that the Lord says, my desire culminates in you, Yod. You should not be uprooted from my name. It's because the power of Yod, or Io, descends from above, and it is Yasod. Iosod. Io. Sof, io, sof. The word sof means end. It's limit. It means a, a limit or an end. It's interesting that the book of Genesis talks about the character Yosef. Io, sof, Yosef, Joseph. 
because he's a character that represents the power of initiation, the soul that can return to the light. Joseph represents the assault, even etymologically in his name. He is the limit or end of Eo, because he's the power of the depository of, or the well of Yasod. So the sexual organs is represented by a well in which we find the waters of life. Our physical body is Malkut, the earth. And if you remember the myth of Joseph, he was betrayed by his brothers and thrown into a well by, I believe, Reuben and, and um, his other uh, affiliates, his family members, who were jealous of his relationship to Jacob. Jacob represents the heart, Tifereth, the uh, human consciousness. And Joseph is as Yasod. So Joseph, in the myth, was thrown into a well, meaning the force of divinity descended from the absolute and entered into Yasod. And it's from the well that we have to get out in order to enter into initiation. So one thing we got to remember is that with Joseph in the myth, he is, uh, or better said, in the, in the book of Genesis, he's the last, I believe, figure mentioned in the book of Genesis. He's the, end, he's the final character in that scripture, or in that, in that text, because Joseph, Yosef, is the end of Eo, the power of the divine entering into the, the waters of life. So the Bible and the Quran also talk about, or both talk about that teaching, how in the Quran the brothers lied to their father Jacob that Joseph was eaten by a wolf. And the wolf is a symbol, as we said in our Canon 5, of karma. There's some interesting folklore commentaries in the Quran, or about the Quran which are very interesting to relate. It was said that when he was placed in the well the water was at first bitter, but when he entered and touched the water, it became sweet. Because when we are conscious of the sexual energy and learn to transmute it, those waters that were bitter from fornication become the sweetness of the soul. Likewise, the well was dark before in the, in the folklore commentary, and yet when he entered the well, it became light. So in the darkness emerges the light of cognizance. He was also brought down in the well naked except for an amulet which supposedly carried the silk of paradise. And if you're familiar with the previous lecture, on, uh, we talked about the solar bodies in Islam. They referred to the garment of reverence known as libas al-taqwa, the garment of reverence. How one has to create this garment of reverence, the solar bodies, to generate the light of the divine. Which you do so by learning to work with the well, the waters of transmutation. In this and commentary of the myth in the amulet he, uh, Joseph wore on his neck supposedly carried the silk of paradise as I said and Gabriel originally gave it to Abraham when he was put into a fire by his people and who gave it to Isaac then gave it to Jacob then to Joseph when Gabriel opened the amulet says the myth um, it gave him uh, comfort specifically and clothed him in the well So, Joseph is the power of Yod, the sperm, or the ovum. 
from which emerges the serpent kundalini power, the electronic akashic divine serpent, the Ouroboros, the light of the Ainsof ore, which rises within the spine through the power of Da'at, alchemy. And so by learning to practice transmutation with one's partner, if one is a husband, one has one's wife. If one is a wife, one has one's husband. In order to generate the work with the power of Joseph. So Arnold Krumheller, great doctor of medicine and the teacher of Sam Island Vior, gave uh, some beautiful explanations about the nature of sexual magic, which became some of the foundations by which Sam Island Vior, his disciple, came to teach the knowledge. Dr. Arnold Krumheller was known as the Master Hirakocha, the Master of Science. He states the following about the mysteries of Joseph, the mysteries of alchemy. Instead of the coitus, which reaches the orgasm, sweet caresses, amorous phrases, and delicate touching should be lavished reflectively, keeping the mind constantly separated from animal sexuality, sustaining the purest spirituality as if the act were a true religious ceremony. Nevertheless, the man can and should introduce the penis and keep it inside the feminine sex, or we can say to introduce the yod, the phallus, and introduce it within the hay, the womb, because the sacred name of God, yod hey vau hey, represents man, woman, phallus, uterus. The yod is a flaccid penis, but when the man reaches erection, it becomes a vav, a straight line, within which it is introduced into the letter hay, the womb of the woman. So the phallus and the uterus must be joined to bring about a divine sensation upon both, full of joy that can last for hours, withdrawing it at the moment of the orgasm to avoid the ejaculation of the semen to conserve the powers of the well, Yasod. In this way, they will have a greater desire to caress each other each time. This may be repeated as many times as desired without ever becoming tiresome. On the contrary, it is the key, or it is the magic key to daily rejuvenation, keeping the body healthy and prolonging life. Because this constant magnetization is a fountain of health. We know that in ordinary magnetism, the magnetizer communicates fluids to the subject, and if the first has those forces developed, he can heal the second. The transmission of magnetic fluids is ordinarily done through the hands or through the eyes, but it is necessary to say that there is no greater and more powerful conductor, a thousand times more powerful, a thousand times superior to others, than the virile member, the yod, and the vulva, the hay, as receptive organs. If many people practice this, they will spread force and success in their surroundings for all those who come into commercial or social contact with them. But in the act of sublime, divine magnetization to which we are referring, both man and woman reciprocally magnetize each other, the one being for the other as a musical instrument, which, when plucked, gives off or emits prodigious sounds of mysterious and sweet harmonies. So Samael and Vera often talks about the lyre of Orpheus, and that, that is the spinal medulla with its seven notes, the seven chakras that resound with power within husband and wife who are practicing sexual alchemy.
Arnold Kramheller continues, the strings of that instrument are spread all over the body, and it is the lips and fingers that make them vibrate, if the utmost purity resides over the act. This is what makes us magicians in that supreme moment. So Yod is the light of Keter, the divine, that emerges from the absolute. And Yod is also hidden within the Hebrew letter Tet, of which we discussed in Arkanam 9. So we need to return that light, transform the Yod into Christic energy, so as to escape the well. And if you remember the myth of Joseph, he's led out of the well and he's sold into slavery into Egypt. So that myth of being in Egypt represents how we are also slaves of materiality, in which Joseph was tempted by a woman who in the Quran is referred to as a Zulaika, who is married to another man, but is sexually attracted to Joseph so much that she constantly tempts him, but he remains chaste. As a, and that is a, used as a symbol of chastity in the, in the Quran, but also the Bible because he is tempted by his own mind, his lust, but remains faithful to chastity, to purity. Yod also reminds us of the Ten Commandments that we must fulfill on earth as it is in heaven. Because how we use energy determines our life, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. The Ten Commandments state, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods, relating to Malkut. Neither shalt thou covet thy neighbor's wife or commit adultery, relating to Yesod. Neither shalt this bear fault, bear fault, neither shalt this bear fault witness, false witness of your neighbor, nor shall you lie, relating to Hod. Thou shalt not steal, relating to Netzach. Thou shalt not commit fornication, relating to Tifereth. Thou shalt not kill, relating to Geburah. Honor thy father and mother, relating to Chesed. Thou shalt sanctify the Sabbath and keep it holy, relating to Binah, the Holy Spirit. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, relating to Chokmah. And lastly, thou shalt love thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we'll be talking and giving courses on the Ten Commandments in the near future, because they really deserve a further explanation. But to conclude, we'll look at a clip or sound clip from Carmina Burana, The Wheel of Fortune, composed by Karl Orff, great master who knew Kabbalah and alchemy very well. Carmina Burana relates to karma, urana, uranas, uranas, uranus, because uranas in Chaldean represents fire and water. Uranus relates to Christ again, to the cycles of sexuality that govern humanity within 40, periods of 42 years. Masculine, feminine, influences. And that power of Uranus also relates to Christ, the Christic force, because Christ planetarily relates to Uranus. And so we see that this great piece of music depicts the rise and fall of tyrants, of initiates, of gods, there are those who are made kings through this wheel of fortune who transcend the wheel 
and yet who fail, who re-enter back into suffering and descend into the negative, devolving worlds. That's uh, represented in this great piece of music, which we'll listen to. So Karmina Burana, if you break down the language, represents karma of the gods, because Ur Anas means light and water. So who is, what is the karma of light and water? Referring to those beings who were once angels. They transcended the wheel of karma, and yet they chose to enter back into suffering. They fornicated again. And therefore they entered the wheel of pain in order to be disintegrated in the infernal worlds. So there's a line in the, which we'll listen to at the end of O Fortuna, O Fortune, like the moon. The final statement of that, the final exclamation of that piece, that short piece, is that fate strikes down the strong man. Everybody weep with me. So who's that strong man? In Kabbalah, the image of Yasod relates to the strong man, a naked man, representing the virile power of Yasod, the sexual energy. So fate strikes down the initiates through karma, through suffering, for having disobeyed the commandments of Jehovah. Let everyone weep, he says. You also have some references in the, in the medieval text, which Karl Orff bases music on, of the baldness of fortune. So to be bald in the internal planes, it means to be a fornicator. To, have not, to not have hair on one's head. Because in ancient times, when a woman was caught committing adultery, they would shave her head as a symbol of infidelity. Because that was an internal symbol of how if one's hair is full, it's because one is bringing the sexual energy through transmutation into the mind to rejuvenate it. And so also in the second clip we'll look at by uh, Karl Orff called Fortuna Plango. There's a statement that says, let the king fear falling. Or let him fear falling down from the wheel of the centuries. Because if one chooses to fall, to act, you know, having transcended that wheel of uh, cyclical existence, one enters into the infernal worlds like Queen Hecuba. Queen Hecuba's fate was the fate of any master who enters into degeneration after having entered into initiation. And Queen Hecuba was the wife of King Priam of Troy. And when the Trojans took over the city, it's a, a symbol of how the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, is destroyed and the period of the soul is desecrated. This is a very powerful piece, very uh, potent, of which we'll listen to real briefly before we take questions. So for those of you who are listening to the lecture online, you can play the audio clips including with the PDF. So that clip teaches us how fortune is like the moon, waxing and waning, providing benefits and then taking away the wheel of karma, the wheel of fortune. Supposedly we get good things and then in the next moment they're taken from us. Karma is like that, to create suffering because of our mistaken actions. But the only way to transcend that mechanicity of pain and agony is by working in a marriage. Because the lines from the medieval text that Karl uh, Orff used in his, in his music state, pluck the vibrating strings. And if you remember that quote from Dr. Arnold Krumheller, 
husband and wife are like musical instruments playing the notes of divinity with, between the couple. So if you want to transcend that moon, the mechanicity of desire, you have to work in a marriage to transform that moon into a sun. Therefore, I turn my back to your bare villainy, referring to any initiate who enters the path of the revolution of the consciousness, because when we recognize we are at fault for our own errors, we make the decision to accept our karma with patience, with diligence, and we turn our back to the, the executioner who whips us, who beats us, so that we can return their hatred with love, transforming any circumstance of karmic sorrow into understanding. Therefore, it says in the text, I turn my back to your bare, I turn my bare back to your villainy in order to be whipped, to pay karma. Like Jesus was whipped 5,000 times by the Romans, a symbol of how one experiences Arcanum 5, the hierarch, karma, but also within retribution, Arcanum 10. And the other piece, uh, well, first off, one thing we mentioned was that, you know, Karma seizes an opportunity. It's represented as a woman with a full head of hair. But whenever it comes to taking an opportunity to provoke suffering, she is bald. Meaning, the karma of fornication is pain, suffering, agony. The other piece, Fortuna Plango, talks about the, those kings, as I said, who must... Uh, Fear downfall, because when you enter into initiation, it doesn't mean that you cannot fall again. Enter back into the wheel and get ground up by that cycle again. So let the king who sits at the top of the peak of initiation, the mountain of uh, Tiferet, let him fear falling, but let him continue upward. And of course, this piece is very powerful. The great warning to the bodhisattvas, those masters who take the direct path to the absolute, so that they know what mistakes not to make. But let fate strike down the strong men, meaning the initiate who takes upon their karma to pay it completely. And when he does so, let everyone weep with me. And then you have that triumphant conclusion with the trumpets at the end of that piece because one is victorious. But if you listen to the whole Carmina Burana, the cycle, it begins with that piece, for, uh, O Fortuna, and ends with that piece. Because that cycling of or that initial beginning and the ending of that piece demonstrates for us what we call the four seasons, the cycle of nature, because the music progresses through different stages, through, from spring to summer to fall and winter, becoming more jovial and then becoming more serious and then reaching the end, a representation of the path of initiation. And again, the number four relates to the four kingdoms of the world of Makut, you have the mineral kingdom, the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom, the humanoid kingdom, relating to the four elements. So Carmina Burana is a very deep piece, which highlights the things we talked about. Any questions? Depends. Depends on divinity because some masters fall very hard. Others uh, 
make a mistake like Samael and Lior did in Lemuria. He fell in love with a woman, not because he wanted to enter black magic, like Javeh and many other fallen bodhisattvas did. So for those masters who fell to, in order to commit black magic, the karma is very serious, so they end up devolving in the infernal worlds. They may be given a, they, Samael mentions that they will be given an opportunity to repent in the future, but it's unlikely that they'll take it. Whereas others like Samael and Vior, who had entered initiation, recognized his mistakes, he was forgiven, and he was able to rise again, this time higher with more knowledge. Well, yes, because if the Bodhisattva recognizes his mistake or her mistake, it's because God is guiding that soul to return. Uh, there's a Sufi initiate, a female master by the name of Rabia. She says, or was asked by a disciple, if I repent, will God forgive me? And she says, no, because if God forgives you, then you will repent. Because you need that impetus from God, the being, to manifest in the soul, in order for that soul to have the possibility for remorse. Because remorse is a sign that one is repentant and that God wants to redeem that consciousness. So people who have no remorse, no judgment, are empty houses, meaning they live in the physical plane and yet they don't have any consciousness left. They're already devolving in hell and their bodies are being manipulated by egos. There's nothing left there. It is. Because if you read the mystery of the Golden Blossom and what Samael and Vior talks about, he talks about how there are monads or spirits, beings that emanate from the Absolute. There are many who don't want self-realization. People like us who are inspired to teach or study this knowledge feel that yearning, what Samael and Vior calls inquietudes. Now, there's been a, we've received many letters from students and messages that they don't understand how some beings, some monads, may be inspired to do the work and others not. Well, in order to really understand why a monad is not interested in the, in the knowledge or in acquiring self-realization, one has to go into the internal planes. But some people who feel that great discomfort and feel tremendous despair or terror when they hear that or when they learn that, the fate of those who don't work on themselves. Obviously, it's because the being in that person, the being in us, is pushing us to work, to escape that fate. So the only reason why we will have quietude is because the being wants self-realization. So if the, so the being does not want self-realization, for the soul to return up the tree of life, back to the absolute, with knowledge, 
it's because that monad is not pushing that soul to work. So there are many people who ask us who are, you know, very afraid. This is, you know, how do I know if my being is pushing me to work? I feel terrified. Well, that impulse that you feel, that despair you feel, is that answer. Because your being is pushing you to change. People who have no conscience are already disconnected from their monad. There's no lights there. The light's gone off in the house, the electricity's gone. It's empty. Yes. Yes. Then, um, so we initiated this practice with the runes. All the runes we did, including Fa, the seven vowels, the rune Rita, help with uh, willpower. But more specifically, there's one for Christ's will. Face the east, heels together, left hand on your left side, right hand on your right hip. This is the rune Dorn. Dorn is included in the magic runes book by Samael and Leor. So you can begin with your hand on your, over your hearts like we did, your hands over your heart as we prayed in the beginning. Uh, you don't need a formula for this. You just ask, my being, my God, help me. Whatever comes natural to you, you want, you want more willpower, more inner strength to combat your demons. Simply ask from your, your heart what you need. Afterward, heels together in the military position, left hand on your left side, right hand on your right hip. You do close your eyes, work the mantras ta, te, ti, to, tu. Sounds like this. Ta, te, ti. cycle seven times, 14 times, as many as you need, asking your inner Christ to make your will Christic. Because right now we have a lot of egotistical will whom we are fighting against. But you as a consciousness may struggle or feel the weakness of confronting one, you know, the mind, which is why when we want to strengthen our will, we work with Christ's will. So the path of Moses that I mentioned to you is Christic will. Willpower that only knows who will be the being. So this is a rune we do in the mornings when the sun rises. Early, you know, as soon as the sun comes up. And you ask your being, my God, I beg you. Give me Christ's will. The will of the being. So that I can conquer my defects. It can be as simple as that. And what's matters is your, your sincerity. and that you're, you're really trying to visualize how that light 
is circulating in you, like we did with the Rune Fa and the other practices, in order to circulate that energy. And Christ's will, you do that for, even if you do that rune for, and the other runes for an hour in the morning, give you a lot of willpower. Not only just to work against your desires, but even with your vocation, your job, you know, when you're active in the day, you need more energy to, to be concentrated. But Christic will will help you. That rune, uh, Dorn, will help you. Dorn reminds us of the god Donner, or Thor, and the symbol of Thor is the hammer, and the, or the hammer in the form of a cross. Because the power of Christ is the power of chastity. And if you've ever seen uh, the opera Das Rheingold by Richard Wagner, which I'm hoping that it'll play within the Lyric Opera House so we can go see it. They're playing Die Valkyrie in the second opera, but not the first. But in Das Rheingold, you see Thor is uh, responsible, or Donner comes in the scene because... The gods have just witnessed a murder in, in Asgard, the heavenly realms. Two giants, one of them killed each other. And the sky becomes full of darkness, cloudiness. And the staging in some of the Met performances I've seen show very beautifully you know, how gloomy it becomes. And the, the music dies down. And the gods are depressed because there's no energy, there's no light there. The soul has been killed through fornication. But Thor comes on the scene. He emerges and sings this very beautiful recitatif, pulls up the hammer and says, Heda, Heda, Hedo. He sings it when you hear the mantras. Heda, Heda, Hedo. Iya, Iya, Oh. Tan, 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 and then the way he does it is when he takes the hammer, he strikes a rock, creates a spark, and then the clouds vanish, and then the gods are greeted by celestial music, and you see a rainbow leading to the heavenly city. Because in order to see the path of initiation, you have to clear your mind. The way you do it is by working with Thor, Donner, and you work with that Christic will in you, with the rune Doran, you're working with your, the Holy Spirit, who is Thor. And that music is very powerful, too. You can look it up um, in which Wagner depicted the same thing. Uh, but if you want to help fight against any ego and develop Christ's will, do the rune Dorn. It's a, mil it's a militant rune. You can also combine that rune with other runes if you find that you need some variety to keep your body moving, stay concentrated. Um, you can do the rune Fa, as we did. The rune Man the seven balls, the rune Rita, and uh, the rune Dorn, especially. And you feel the, you do that every day in the morning, especially. You can handle any situation. Personally, when in my job, I, I deal with certain people who are very difficult. But when I do the runes and I do my mantras and prayers, I have willpower to face it and not get identified. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org.
All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace. Thank you.